0: This is a humble man recording.
1: Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King.
0: Why do you have so many batteries in your car all the time?
1: For this podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, we go through two batteries every time we record. Oh
0: my goodness! Did you know that? I I bought
1: us batteries. I
0: have no idea.
1: I'm deeply invested in this podcast.
0: <laughs> well, good morning, Courtney.
1: Good morning, Hayden.
0: How's it this morning?
1: Good, good.
0: We're driving on uh, your fancy new car.
1: Yep, first podcast in the new car. It's pretty exciting. It's a uh, my feat of adulting. My, I've become a person of debt.
0: <laughs> this is your first car, your first new car.
1: Yeah, my first brand new car. Yep. Yeah.
0: I've never had a brand new car before.
1: Yeah, I mean, it had seventy-three kilometers on it when Whoa. I picked it up yesterday. So it's all—you know—something happens. To this car, it's all my fault.
0: Red Road's doing well. We can yeah. afford to buy a podcast car.
1: I'm gonna hopefully this podcast takes off and I can write this car off on my taxes.
0: I was I was surprised people were actually listening to the podcast.
1: I am too. Hey, we have over five hundred downloads on our first two episodes.
0: Ah, uh, that's terrifying to me it is I expected six people to listen to this
1: I did too I genuinely like when we went through all the trouble to record the pilot and then you were like why would we advertise this <laughs> I was like so, well we, at, we should at least like tweet it we
0: yeah t- we should we should tweet it yeah <laughs> Uh, my Instagram stories are broken, so I can't. Like, I'm half, half on the media, uh, social media advertising for our podcast.
1: I can't believe we went through all that trouble and like one of our like early recordings of you shaming me for not watching your Instagram story, and now look at you.
0: <laughs> well, because you were shaming me for not adding you to my social media, so yeah, you know when true. I that's when true. I we 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 became social media friends, I figured yeah. uh, you know
1: we're not actually social media friends though, aren't we? No.
0: Well, I don't use Facebook.
1: Really. Yeah.
0: So uh, Red Road has a new car and social media, and we're on our third episode now.
1: And a lot of listeners. So and some listeners. Yeah, tons, tons. Um,
0: so let's. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the pressure, guys. <laughs> a little bit of pressure. I guess. <laughs> a little bit of pressure. No, it'll be
0: all yeah. good.
1: And also, so to the day that we're driving in. The, uh, the QEWs shut down both ways in Niagara What? Yeah, so sh- uh, there was a huge accident There's a transport um, across the center, I guess So both directions, QEWs to Niagara is down So the traffic is exceptionally
0: bad oh, today Oh man, I didn't even uh, check the maps You know I, I was lucky. so excited about the new car that I didn't even <laughs> check the red road
1: the car could tell us. Look at the cars telling us what the traffic is. I just noticed like.
0: that. That's. I know. It's very fancy.
1: It has so many features. I'm just like blown away by it. And it's, um, you know, I, I think in an earlier episode I talked about how much I love capitalism and here we are.
0: New cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a staple. It's got it?
1: my sweet grass and everything.
0: Yeah, except the sweet grass doesn't seem to have the power to overcome the new car smell. No, it's trying, though. You need seven braids in here. I know.
1: That's the biggest braid I could find on my res.
0: The one thing that this car lacks is a spot to put our recorder. That's the, uh... We're going to have to figure that out.
1: Yeah. Um... That's going to be shitty because it looks so precarious (laughs) (laughs) when we have it. We'll see how the sound...
0: (laughs) quality is after today's recording. It's still...
1: You can tell, right? We didn't actually turn the recording off, or accidentally turn the recording off. Well, that's something. I think you need to, like...
0: It'll be fine.
1: Yeah.
0: It's all good. Eric will sort it out.
1: Yeah. Sorry, Eric.
0: So you bought a new car. Mm-hmm. You must be uh, making the big bucks now. I'm uh, making middle Making the reconciliation class.
1: bucks. I'm middle class now. Um, I... Um, listen I'm a single income household (laughs) (laughs) I am uh, it's just me and my cats and they have expensive tastes I have to work very hard to keep them in the lifestyle they've become accustomed to and yeah so the job you know you really have to like I so the compromise was I was able to afford a new car because I did not get an apartment in Toronto Uh. So, I did not get an apartment in Toronto. I was looking for a place in Toronto, and I could not afford an apartment.
0: Buy two new cars.
1: Yeah. I could buy two new cars. Well, I bought this very nice car, but I um, could not afford to live in Toronto. I could not find an apartment that was reasonably priced. And the cost of living in the city is so much. Uh, Before I moved to Ottawa, I had an apartment in Toronto and my house on the res. And... That was like tight, and I coming back and couldn't make it work this time.
0: Homeless in the homeland.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No, yeah. of course not. Um, I know,
1: so poor me. I only have
0: one house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so this, you've got a good, you got a, you got a decent job going uh, this yeah. time. Last last podcast episode, we started talking about some of your odd jobs.
1: Yeah, some of my weird jobs. It was honestly the highlight of the podcast for me.
0: <laughs> but we didn't even scratch the surface. No.
1: I've had every weird job. I have had so many jobs. So I talked last week about like being in police foundations. And when I was doing all of that, I was like 19 to 21, essentially. And no police service is going to hire a 21-year-old. And the thing that, like, our profs always said is that you need to have a lot of life experience. You have to have a lot of different experiences that you can draw on to be able to exercise, like, good discretion. And so they always encouraged us to do a ton of volunteering and experience life with a lot of different people. And you had to, like, demonstrate how you were, like, going out to know people that, like, weren't like yourself. So, I mean, for me, that was white people. But, um... (laughs) it was really emphasized that you should have, like, this diversity of experience. So I've had, like, gone out of my way to have and dabble in, like, a lot of different fields. So I've done, like, counseling, classroom counselors in youth residential facilities. Um, I'm trying to think of some of my weird jobs. I've been a taxi driver... I worked at the bingo hall on my res as a runner. I still work at the radio station bingo on my res. Um, I tried to be a professional mini-golf player.
0: That one's my favorite.
1: That one's your favorite? Yeah. So, yeah, so I read this book um, called Tilting at Windmills, and it followed this guy who became a professional mini-golf player. And I was just like, yes, this is, like, my new thing. I'm going to do this. And then for, like, three months... I, like, dragged my boyfriend at the time to, like, every golf, mini-golf course in, like, the Hamilton area and got super good at mini-golf. Like, so good. And I have this, like, random skill of, like, just being exceptionally good <laughs> at mini-golf and...
0: Does that mean you're just really good at geometry?
1: I don't know what it is. I, you know, it has to do more with speed. The secret to mini-golf in, like, an, an international competition is that they play on regulated courses... So there's, like, standard courses that you have to play. And then you can change the weight of the ball you're hitting. So it's, like, extremely physics, right? Because it's, like, you use different ball weights for different holes instead of switching your putter, which is, like, you know, regular golf, you would change your Hmm. club. But in mini golf, you change your ball.
0: Is that right?
1: Yeah. So... Um, the problem was the real barrier to that career taken off was that uh, there's no regulation courses in like the GTA oh, I see so I could never get to like a course that was like a regulation course to train on
0: there's that mini golf uh, mini golf course on Six Nations you ever go play there Somebody, yeah somebody's somebody's backyard
1: yeah it's just like yeah that kind of mini golf I could crush those kinds of mini golf <laughs> awesome. the best I ever did was like an 18 hole mini golf course I finished it in 20 strokes.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. So, when I went to sc- so I went to school for police foundations, and then I was too young, right, to be hired once I had kind of like finished the courses. So, I was like, well, I might as well go to university. And I ended up going to Laurier in Brantford for organizational leadership in contemporary studies. And they, um, and then I was like, well, maybe, and at that time, too, I had taken, like, a one-year course in private security, and so I was thinking, like, maybe I'll actually become the head of, like, a private security firm.
0: <laughs>
1: that was, like, literally my goal at one point, where I was like, oh, I could do, like, a private security manager, because I have, like, this policing background, and then I'm taking these like, businessy courses, and when I started studying, like, organizations, I was like, well, I should learn how to play golf, of course of, Logically the next right. step is Right yeah mini golf yeah. And then I had this history of, of being very good at mini golf So I It makes
0: total sense
1: Yeah So I Um Started taking golf lessons of course Because
0: <laughs> Like actual golf off, lessons
1: Actual golf lessons So I went to a golf pro And I was learning how to play golf And I Shit of course I'm not a very good golf player But I Cause I can't drive the ball very far Um but when I would like When we got to the part of the training Where I was like going to go putting He was like Your putting game is very mature <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah
0: Man I was at the yeah. AFN meeting last week in Ottawa and I mean they, they don't have They don't have golf tournaments every AFN meeting You know once yeah. a year but If they had an AFN mini golf tournament I think I might sign up for that Yeah Put in a foursome Yeah You join me?
1: I would for sure be the ringer. You would need me on your team. Are you kidding? <laughs> Be doing you a favor. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like golf tournaments. I like golfing. That's kind of like my um, my bougie pastime.
0: Okay. Well, it's uh, so it wasn't quite a job. It was uh, no, it was a more a passion project. project. A passion, a passion project.
1: Um, I was a firefighter.
0: Firefighter. Right?
1: A volunteer yeah. firefighter on my res. I was a fire dispatcher. So I like answered the phone when people called 911 and needed the fire department. And I was also a fire prevention officer. So I went around and like did like to dress up like Sparky and teach kids about fire safety.
0: Have you? Do you know Ontario Tech Services?
1: Oh yes, I know Tech Services.
0: <laughs> so this is an organization that supports First Nations with fire services and uh, related safety and technical expertise and their safety pamphlets to hand out to children and communities is basically chief wahoo yeah teaching kids fire safety and what to do when the fire detector have a fire alarm in your home what to do with it and you're being led out of your house by chief wahoo
1: it's not even though that he is like sparky and that he is the knowledgeable person for fire safety it's like he's getting electrocuted, don't get electrocuted like Chief Wahoo, right. this dumb brown right. Indian. Exactly, Right? Yeah. It's like, he's the bad example of what not to do.
0: But tech, tech services is a First Nation organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, they produce this material for other communities and it's deeply stereotypical. How did this happen?
1: Uh, it's called internalized colonialism. Inter- internalized <laughs> impression.
0: I guess so. I mean, you can make that argument that when we adopt sort of uh you know how many how many reserve baseball teams are called the Braves or the Indians with logos or gas stations with indian yeah. heads on them like tons and you can oh, really? make that argument that you know maybe there's a reclamation happening but this this stuff is is bad
1: my high school is in the high school I went to was in Kuga Ontario and our mascot was a warrior head like a guy in a war bonnet and like being a naive kid and like not really having much critical thought at the time it was kind of just like okay whatever didn't think too hard on it now it's like okay that was fucked up
0: <laughs> it was fucked up in retrospect yeah, yeah
1: in retrospect I don't know I think being what it is
0: <laughs> I, I, for me I've sort of gone through this cycle where when I was a kid I was like into it because I was thirsty for any sort of representation like Blackhawks whatever and then, you know, you come into this political consciousness and you understand the stereotypes and the racism that flow from those stereotypes and the harm of that racism in material ways and get very angry. I mean, one of the fiercest debates, and it's kind of surprising and maybe a little bit silly, I think, is around this representation politics and, and, uh, and uh, really coming down hard on on yeah. these stereotypical images.
1: Yeah.
0: I shouldn't it's, say that it's silly, but... And now I'm... But I guess I'm I'm saying that it's silly because now I'm sort of a little bit moving away from that critique as I have young children coming up and they see these images and they don't understand the uh, negative consequences, which I, it's, you know, my job to teach them. But at four or five years old, they're, they're mm-hmm. sort of... They see a totem pole at a playground and they're kind of excited or... Uh, they see it uh, teepee out of context, and they're they're excited. They want to know. They they know that that's a symbol of indigeneity, and they want to want to uh, see more and learn more. And, I mean, obviously, through this and as they grow, I'll be teaching them about the harm. But it's an interesting process that I've undergone through my life uh, in terms of uh, appreciating, rejecting, criticizing these sort of these icons.
1: Your kids are bad feminists?
0: <laughs> I don't know, what is uh, a bad <laughs> feminist?
1: Oh, no, it's fine. It's I have a friend, Matt, and uh, he is a... Do about
0: Roxanne Gay's book, Bad yeah, Feminists?
1: Yeah, no. I'm talking oh. about my friend, Matt, who's a white guy married to uh, an indigenous woman. And we tell him, my friend Lauren and I blame him all the time that he's raising his kids to be bad feminists. His kids aren't woke enough.
0: (laughs) My daughter's pretty woke. I mean, she... I have
1: no doubt. I have no doubt that a a young woman is more woke than you are. (laughs) My faith in young women is extreme. Like... I've never met your daughter. I she's amazing. She, she's pretty already, well. I, I yeah. feel like
0: I have a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of uh, contribution to her uh, her consciousness, yeah. political consciousness, <laughs> yeah. as a six year old. But that's no, the thing too. Right. I,
1: I feel like kids have different symbols though in today's media than I did. Right? Like when I think of like the young indigenous Disney princesses that my nieces are growing up with, they have Moana and like Lilo. Right? Like they have. Sure those and i had pocahontas and princess tiger lily
0: yeah i mean there's there's a critique of uh, moana of course as well for sort of taking uh, polynesian culture generally and mashing it into this sort of uh caricature i mean I, I think it's uh my daughter loves that movie she dressed as moana for halloween last year which was a Sort of a delicate conversation, you know. Again, last time we talked about we were, last time we were talking about cultural appropri inter indigenous cultural appropriation, and here I am, another mm-hmm. uh, perpetrator of that crime. Um, but I was thinking about this with Pocahontas. Yeah. So my daughter doesn't know the story of Pocahontas. She doesn't know about John Rolfe and the <clears throat> the Little Hellion or any of the grotesque and Details of, of, of that story. Um, now, one of her non-native relatives, uh, not by blood, sort of got her a Pocahontas doll one year with a bunch of other Disney characters. And immediately it was like, no, 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 no. Let me take that away from you, and then explain to the person, you know, we can't have this, and this is why we can't have that. But then the more that I thought about it, I was like, what if what if my daughter did have this? Uh, doll to play with, free of the context, mm. so free of the background. So she, so, so there's a there's a uh, an, in, an indigenous doll that she can play with, and she doesn't know anything about about the story. Like, is that offside? You know what I mean? I mean, it, it wasn't sort of the Barbie uh, uh, of the objectification doll of, of, of young woman of a young uh, young woman doll. Um,
1: i think yeah i think there's uh, it's so hard because like i grew up in peak pocahontas like i think i was like eight when the movie came out and so i have a lot of like really complex feelings about it i mean but do i have a shirt that i wore yesterday that has miko on it yes um who's the only good character in that movie by the way is the raccoon okay um only redeeming character quality of the movie is the raccoon character um but even Pocahontas oh even Pocahontas because
0: she chooses the white guy and yeah and says goodbye to her family and community yeah and that's what that's exactly why I don't want my daughter watching the actual movie yeah for the sort of messages they convey so I guess
1: and there are so many layers that are really upsetting to the movie that are really frustrating I mean I, I can't divorce it from like the context of missing and murdered women and to me it's a really, the movie itself is so tied up in the role that Russell Means played in its development, the way that he dismissed criticism of the movie, his own personal advocacy and action and how that has been tied to violence against women and it's, like that to me is like I, I don't know how to I don't know how to see the good through a lot of the bad right? And I yeah, try yeah, to yeah. like I I try to think about, you know, how does it change for, what kind of standards do I want to set and portray and make available to my nieces, and, and how do I do that, right? Because I, and I also think the role of, like, auntie is different than the role of parent, obviously, but I feel like that the, the girls in my life deserve a a better, a better representation of their culture than that.
0: Yes. And... My daughter would eventually come across Pocahontas, so if I did allow her to play with this doll, this mm-hmm. doll that was, you know, context-free, maybe a positive representation, she would eventually come across Pocahontas and then identify with uh, the film, yeah. and that yeah. would be very bad, because, as you say, it's a very poor representation, ultimately. Yeah. So
1: Yeah, it's a very uh, damaging, right? And it's hard to, like, get kids to, like, associate, like, these positive things with, like, these really horrible things that happen in the future like I think about like Princess Tiger Lily and that was the only real native character I had she's actually like on my profile on Twitter right Princess Tiger Lily Pocahontas and Wednesday Adams as dressed as an Indian like those are the three characters I had growing up and to me I have like a more I I identify more with like Princess Tiger Lily and that representation and reclaiming her over Pocahontas, right? Because to me, Prince Tiger Lily was, like, literally, like, the sexualized, voiceless Native woman that danced for the white guys when they came to the Native community, right? And it's, like, we have so few examples of mainstream media representing Native women, and especially, like, racialized Native women in a in a positive way.
0: It's a bit weird. I mean, I've been able, I've been teaching for 11 years and um, I, the bulk of my career, the balance of my career has been teaching to primarily non-Indigenous students. Uh, I've been fortunate that the last couple of years, my, I teach, I work exclusively with First Nations students now and I don't, I'm not in the classroom with non-Native students and it's uh, a wonderful thing. I think that we need more spaces for just Indigenous people to not only deal with the oppressive nature of the academy itself, but also the really complex issues that are happening in our communities. I mean, there's there's so few spaces, I think, um, where you can come together in a healthy way as just Indigenous people and talk about, you know, shared concerns across communities and solutions and challenges. And uh, that's basically what my classrooms are, are now, so I'm really really quite happy about that but for the majority it's been working with non-indigenous people and even the work i do outside of the classroom it's non-indigenous folks and it can definitely take its toll on you i mean there's a lot of racism and ignorance and uh and uh you need a tremendous amount of patience
1: yes we actually worked on di- a different iteration of the same project, which was the Ontario Provincial Indigenous Cultural Competency Course.
0: No, I resigned from that. You resigned from it. <laughs> yeah. You were
1: involved in it briefly.
0: I was invited <laughs> on to so this is basically the Ontario government wanting to include mandatory training or education for all of its civil servants. I was initially invited on to sit as an advisory member uh to oversee the development of the curriculum and then once they told me that it was going to be online modules I I resigned mm-hmm. and then you worked on it
1: I worked on it before that
0: before that oh yeah. okay
1: so this is actually a commitment that came out of the Ipawash inquiry
0: right wow one of those yeah, one
1: of those recommendations and it was uh had gone through a number of different iterations i actually did a version of it uh, before it got to the advisory panel stage.
0: Hmm. I yeah. see, yeah. I mean, in principle, it's a it's a good thing. I mm-hmm. Generally, it's a good thing. I mean, Canadians are never going to change their behavior and how they think mm-hmm. and act in the world unless they understand how they're implicated in ongoing colonization.
1: Do you think so? I think they just become willfully ignorant instead of... Ignorant, ignorant,
0: yeah. Uh, well, I, I think it's actually rare to turn a Canadian. Uh, it it happens. It does happen. I've seen it happen. Um, and I see students and individuals move from being deeply racist to slightly less racist. You know, moderate racists. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's progress, um, <laughs> but there are there are, you definitely see some changes now. Whether or not it actually leads to them changing how they. Uh, think and act in the world, I mean yeah, that's a really good question.
1: I have a joke I've been working on for my stand-up, which is basically like people want everyone to be perfect and I don't I'm willing to compromise on that. And if I think about like what I would hope men achieve, it's that I my favorite kind of men are anti-racist and benevolently sexist. <laughs> because life is hard and if someone's going to be benevolently sexist I'll take it. They'll open your car door, they'll buy you some dinners. I'm willing to compromise on that one. (laughs) Um, Which is a really bad joke, which is part of my stand up. It is uh, not something I actually hold close to my heart. Yeah, it's it's one of my bad takes that I'm trying to develop into a joke. But no, I see that really with like, um, oh my gosh, with uh, that ABTN show that first contact contact. did you actually watch it oh of course not i watched the first two episodes and then the reflection after the second episode and it was so frustrating and i see this all the time um with you know with this cultural competency thing we're asked to develop with generally the, the cultural competency work that's done by organizations that there's this idea that you can just like expose people and give them that it's the onus is on indigenous people To meet some kind of standard of every Canadian, that we have to then show and expose ourselves in a way to meet like a standard of legitimacy for human rights recognition, that each individual white person has a different threshold for. Right.
0: It was like. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. Uh, It was like those posters. I can't remember who who uh, designed them. Where they there was a side by side poster. There was a poster of like a. Resting face Indian who is like supposed mm-hmm. to be angry and uh, mm-hmm. disgruntled, and then mm-hmm. beside it, it, it said, "Look again," and the and the Indian would be like smiling. Yeah, it's it's a it, it's the same sort of phenomenon, you know. It's yeah. just like, listen, give us a chance. We're people too, mm-hmm. and once you recognize that, you know, we're humans, mm-hmm. then maybe you'll be less racist.
1: And that's the whole thing with like this, uh, the idea of like cultural exchange that has become almost part and parcel with the reconciliation trc kind of work right is that like oh if we continue to build this relationship then um then things will get better right part of it is you know these immersive experience so you go to these things and there's like people are like as like almost like a side event to a conference having sweat lodges and doing these kinds of things right and it's like we actually don't need that, right? And part sweat of sweat lodges. Part of good relationships is having boundaries, right? Having some freaking boundaries. But no, I've this is like because I work in like MMIW and like the social field, there's been this huge emergence within like the last year or maybe year and a half where conferences or events or meetings, if they're taking place in community, they'll have Sweats either at night or in the morning, or part of a pre-conference, to available so that people can process and be a more trauma-informed space around the conference. So we're talking about like very difficult activities. There's going to be an opportunity for for ceremony, right, and and doing those kinds of pieces. And so, like, um, I believe in some of the um, inquiry, the national inquiry sessions, there has been an opportunity for family members or people that are impacted by the inquiry process to go and actually participate in sweats or shake tents and things like that. Shake tents? Yeah.
0: This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I do not believe that you should have sweats or shake tents for non-native people outside of ceremonial spaces.
1: I don't know if it's for non-native people or if it's for like the native participants. Uh, I was at a conference recently where it was open to not... Like, where sweats were open to non-Native people.
0: That's across the line, if you ask yeah. me. Yeah. But the whole phenomenon... Mm-hmm. It, you're, and whether or not you can you can expose non-Indigenous people, white people, primarily to the to Indigenous culture, ceremony, you just knowledge, facts, basic mm-hmm. facts, and they'll change their behavior is an unanswered question. I mean, I was recently invited to, uh, this happened to me last week, actually, I was invited to um, Collingwood, where I where I grew up in part, uh, to give a talk to this, uh, basically it was like a seniors organization, it was like 300 seniors were gathered at a church, it was very odd, it was very strange, um, but I went because it was an opportunity to go back to, to Collingwood, see my brother, and and uh, I was going to bring my family and stuff That that didn't end up happening But anyway So I'm giving this talk on treaties um, Very strange setting Very strange circumstances But I'm giving this talk on treaties It's two hours long It's going well um, Afterwards The questions are actually great Very engaged audience And then people come up to me And they're talking to me Etc, cetera, etc cetera. And then finally the last person Very last person comes up to me And she starts talking about how um, She lives on an island uh, in Georgian Bay that used to belong to my ancestors, that used to belong to my community, and and she has the deed on the wall that says this land is uh, um, reserved for the Chippewa Indians, and how there was a little plot of land on on her island that uh, one family, the Toby family actually, who were kicked off of Boscule Island uh, when they made it a national park, they could live there and continue to continue to live on the little tiny corner of her island, and how how how. Novel she thought that that was And eventually they were forced to sell it Um, And so now another cottager Has that little plot of land on her island In Georgian Bay that she lives on for six months of the year And she goes on with this story And then she starts to tell me about how Her career was actually as a child welfare uh, Worker for the province And on on every Tuesday She would go into court and she would argue Why uh, native women Were unfit to be mothers And that their children should be in state care And she's telling me all of this after we've done this, you know, two hour long presentation on treaties and settler colonialism and seemingly people get it and understand it. Um, and she expressed some guilt, but she also, she also re- recounted these stories very dispassionately and it was sort of a, uh, difficult way to end that, uh, meeting for me. And a strange thing happened where, and it—I don't know if it's ever happened to me before—but I was listening to this person talk, as she was talking about her experiences as a child welfare worker. I had just had this vision in my mind of her standing on the granite on some island in Georgian Bay, uh, and the wind picking up and her being swept away by the bay. That's just what—that ha- was just going on in my brain when she was telling me the story. It was—it 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 was like a vision. Um, and, uh, I told it to a friend, another friend, and, and she said that maybe it's a prophecy, and I actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope maybe, uh, yeah. maybe it is, um, yeah. but it was just an example, it was just one of those examples where you think that you're getting through to people. Yeah. And, uh, you're really not. Yeah.
1: That's a really intense story. An intense experience to have.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, like I said, I've been doing this for a decade, so there's all kinds of stories like that, but that one was unique, I think, um, and, uh, troubling.
1: Yeah. I definitely, yeah, and I definitely see that, right, and I see this, like, danger, and I, and I think about that myself, right, at the, the field that I work in, and kind of having this ability to affect change and influence over some of these circumstances, right, these situations, where this happens right and I'm definitely you know a person still seen as like you know starting my career I'm going into my sixth year of working in policy and I'm a you know a senior now which is its own milestone in itself but like there's definitely this idea that there are people that know better and that when things like these cultural experiences are the things that are recommended by elders or recommended by the community and part of my job becomes just like implementing what the community is voicing what they want right and they want these things available to them and you try and then there's me as a Mohawk person trying my best to facilitate within white structures what Anishinaabek people are are, are saying that they want to have take place right and it's like okay well here's what we're doing and I ended up teaching a bunch of white people how to fold tobacco ties a couple weeks ago, and I was like, I don't know what your story <laughs> Thankfully, Hayden was there to talk to me about like uh, what tobacco means to Anishinaabe people, so I didn't end up having to do like a weird blend of what I know as a Haudenosaunee person and, and what has been given to me by Anishinaabe people. What was really heartening for me was when I actually got to that event where I needed to uh, where we had done this preparing of the tobacco ties, um, Elder Gertie Bokaj was there. And she is one of the people who has been supportive of many people's journey and understanding of culture. And and I've definitely worked with her in the past on a number of different work-type things. And so it was really lovely to have her there. But it's like, I don't know, right? I don't know how to say what we're going to, what we have been trying to do for so long, which is this like exposure and understanding relationship building. And then you see something like first contact that so starkly shows how ineffective that is that if we were able to do like, they spent 28 days with those people, right? Most of these cultural competency things are like two hours an afternoon, maybe three days. If you're lucky, you get to spend that much time with someone and talk to them about what indigenous people are, who we are and what our experience has been. And to just be shown how the extreme version of that is ineffective is really, it it validated what I've suspected for a long time, and now I've been thinking about, like, how do we change it and what becomes different, and part of me is just to the point of frustration where it's like, we need to link this to job performance outcomes, we need to be able to set performance standards for all employees when it comes to... What they're expected to do with their practices to set guidelines for um, what people have their, their ability to demonstrate discretion on, you know, I, I,
0: what they should be involved with when it comes to making policy.
1: What they should be involved in, but also what the standards of their practice are. And I think that that comes from like a very, especially in like, you know, my experience in like a mainstream setting is it comes from buy-in from leadership, right? So if leadership is saying this is what we expect to see from our organization and our people, I don't really, it doesn't really matter what people have in their hearts, right? It doesn't matter what people have in their hearts or what they see happening that way. They'll just do it anyway because it's what's expected to them from their job because they it's, we live in a capitalist society, and people have to make money. So if they're expected to do something because it's an expectation of their job, they'll do it whether or not they believe it or not. Right. And so I think that is what kind of, like, compromise I've come to, or at least kind of way that I've understand this, is, like, how is this actually, like, how, how is it tied to someone's money? Right. How are you tying it to their money, their ability to get money, and that will be the actual thing that will convince most people. Right. To actually change their behavior,
0: you're talking about institutionalizing anti-racism.
1: Yes, something like that.
0: Uh, but we don't
1: call it anti-racism because sure, of course. anti-racism well, is necessarily, or sometimes politically, exclusive to Indigenous people.
0: Institute institutionalizing reconciliation.
1: Structural change. Structural, structural change. Structural yeah,
0: institutionalizing reconciliation. I don't like, don't like the sound of that, but no. I, I hear what you're saying. I think that uh, mm. how do you... Then you
1: end up you... with the rights recognition framework.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, mm. this, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a cynical take, but it's... Mm. I mean, we both have experience doing this work, and mm. I do wonder about the sort of positive examples um You know, we're coming back to talking about representation, but you look around. I mean, Jeremy Dutcher just won the Polaris Prize. He's one of, I think, three other Indigenous artists that have won it in the past five years, or four other Indigenous artists. Um, We have Tanya Tagak on the um, Giller long list. Uh, I, I think that there's, in the past two years, Indigenous writers musicians artists poets have won every possible prize there is to win um, and it's something to celebrate you know we're all like this is this is deserved Canadians finally you know in some quarters at least in the in the uh, arts are, are recognizing the, um, the the value and sophistication and brilliance of indigenous work but I wonder also if this is sort of a is if this is sort of a technology of settler colonialism, and again, I, I did say that this was going to be cynical, but um, it's sort of on the fly theorizing, I guess, of, of settler colonialism, but if if we do uh, see these as genuine acts and genuine uh, offerings by Canadians, by Canadian institutions, then you have to say that that is rec- recon- reconciliation, no? You have to say that like things are improving. That these are these are good examples that we're moving forward together in a good way. Uh, but I also can't help thinking about how a lot of settler colonialism has to do with appropriating indigenous symbols, indigenous ideas, indigenous work. Um, and it's not to say that the individuals who are winning these prizes don't have agency or aren't going to continue to critique Canada, but. What are the dynamics at play with uh, these awards and sort of settler colonialism reproducing itself by appropriating Mm -hmm. sort of indigenous uh, Mm -hmm. uh, um, art and symbols and literature? Um, And that's sort of a very stark contrast to saying, yes, reconciliation is, 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 is working. And I don't want to cast it as that very uh black and white binary but you know which which is it of the two or where is the uh middle ground that's my question to our listeners
1: i think it's yeah it's a hard thing to to think about right because i think that while there's a lot of people that are saying like yes this is you know the people who are most engaged in the conversations or feel like they personally have had an ability to influence or affect change, or develop relationships for themselves, are would say right that things are going really well, and people that have a lot of access and and uh, agency around situations. And I never like to think of like my own personal experiences of being like the experience that everyone else has had. And I think that there's an increasing. Class stratification that's happening for Indigenous people, where there are very affluent Indigenous people, and like I would count us as being a part of that of having access to institutions and being able to affect change that isn't available to the average person, right? And that reconciliation and these kinds of things are becoming another way in which, like, Indigenous knowledge is extracted and made available to only certain people. You know, like the whole push for Indigenous languages and how it's becoming institutionalized into universities. Right. And the only way that like a lot of people might be able to have access to is to, uh, go to a university and how many barriers exist for so many native people to be able to access a university setting. Right. Versus like, it's just becoming another thing that's extracted from us. Right. And that becomes marketed and sold back to us, our own culture, right. Our own languages. And that things aren't really changing for the people that have been most impacted by colonialism. The people displaced from their land or... You know,
0: I don't know. I mean, I was having a conversation with somebody just last night and they were talking about how um, once you get to the point where you have podcasts, for instance, or um, television shows or art or uh, of any shape or form that's not specifically about Indigenous issues... Then that's progress, isn't it? Isn't that progress? And so, uh, I was
1: in the Senate a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago. I've lost a sense of time. But recently, I was uh, before the Senate broke for the summer session. I was in the um, the Indigenous Peoples Committee for it, and I was saying, like, you know, one of the most important parts to me of Undrip is the idea that Indigenous people have a right to aspiration. And especially indigenous youth, right? They have a right to their aspirations and they have a right to aspire to things beyond the healing of our communities. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many of myself and my peers that the only thing that we thought about and the only thing that became consuming for us was healing our communities, right? Like I saw it as a young person in law and justice, but so many people want to be counselors or they want to be rehab Um, Workers, or they want to do these things, right? And all of their aspirations and everything they've thought of wanting for their communities is inward-facing and healing the hurt, right? And I think our kids deserve to aspire to things beyond healing.
0: Yeah, I agree completely and 100%. Um, Those are the same things. I agree. Yeah. But uh, I'm just curious about what that reveals about the... Uh, um benchmarks of reconciliation and mm-hmm. and where we're at. So I mean my original preoccupation I guess is um with the recognition, you know, that uh indigenous people at least in the art are seeming to mm-hmm. accrue in considerable amounts and 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 you know whether it's whether it's talking about indigenous issues whether it's not talking about indigenous issues specifically or describing or whatever um that 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 reveals to me um, or at least it's my question that there are actually canadians that get it there are actually canadians that are changing their um perceptions and beliefs and uh, coming to learn and change the way they act in the world and redistributing wealth effectively—that's a material uh, a contribution. But uh, again, part of me, there's that nagging part of me that's saying, "This is this is just mm-hmm. this is just trying to appropriate to legitimize the Canadian settler state, right?" I definitely
1: um, have that same kind of like that same pressure and that same, I guess, that. I guess, skepticism that this is... Because I always think of, like, who is it for? Who has access to it? And who doesn't, right? Who isn't having these opportunities? And I think about some of the people on my own reserve or people that I know that don't have access to the same kind of, like, ability to navigate grants and proposals. And they don't have that same, you know, that... um, they're not, they don't participate in the same way, right? And so mm-hmm. I don't. I can never find satisfaction in the way things are because I know there are people that are left out. And I always am kind of looking for that to, to spread um, access to opportunity or information or those kinds of things to other people because I think that it's so important to yep. understand who's being left out, right? Because those are the people... Because it's not, you know, we talked about this before, but, like, you know, when we talk about violence against women, I'm safe, right? I'm not an indigenous woman that's experiencing a high degree of risk for violence. But there are certainly hundreds of Native women that are. And are they made safer by a book being recognized by an award? Like... Does that, is it, does it translate into the lived reality of our most vulnerable people? Good
0: question. So, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm seeing what Mm -hmm. you're saying here. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the, I could make an argument Mm -hmm. that yes. So you could say that a book like Seven Fallen Feathers, Mm -hmm. for instance, would, um, make people understand how Mm -hmm. racism actually continue, Mm -hmm. contributes and is responsible for the death of children. Mm -hmm. Um, and Potentially influences mm-hmm. policy, influences mm-hmm. attitudes, uh, and therefore uh, reduces mm-hmm. violence. And you could make that argument,
1: and that's the thing too, right? It's I'm always drawn to that question of like, how and then how do we measure it, right? How do we know? How can you prove it that that has a, you know a relational impact to um, that, right? Because it could, you know, you're right, like you know. I understand the indirect kind of argument that's made there but at the same time it's like I want to see substantial changes that make women safer right so I want to know that we're measuring femicide in Canada in a way that is you know disaggregated to race and class and age right like I want to know that and I want to be able to say there are less Native women that have died this year than died last year i want to be able to quantify it right because otherwise this illusion that's created by this visibility of a sense of safety for elite indigenous people doesn't actually change things right and it and it plays out in so many different ways it plays out in like the who gets recognized as being indigenous right whose voices get amplified over whose right and like the idea and you see it over and over again that so many times the women who are missing that we're sharing on Twitter and Facebook they're racialized First Nations women and the people that are getting recognized for their accomplishments are the white passing Native
0: people Mm mm-hmm yeah I mean I hear that (laughs) as a white passing often white passing Native person but Mm -hmm. yeah no I that's a that's a powerful critique here we are um talking you know in the first part of this uh discussion talking about the need for representation um and recognition and uh particularly for young people coming up to have that recognition uh and then now we're sorting to, we're starting to get it right we're starting to see it and and just being unhappy with it, with it so yeah because I,
1: because if you if you're not comparing outcomes or you're not comparing those types oh i'm in the wrong way I know how to get to work from here. Um, if you're not comparing it, right? Because I, as someone who has done both frontline work and academic work, and you know what I mean? All these pieces, I, right. you see so many more white passing people here. And if you're doing frontline work and you're working in the jails, you're dealing with racialized people. Yeah, 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 you're dealing yeah. with the racialized people. And that is inescapable, mm-hmm. right? And even over the weekend, I saw someone being like, native-only spaces are... It's okay if there's only white passing Native people in those spaces.
0: Hmm.
1: And it's like, is, to your point, like, is this becoming another product of like white supremacy, right? And like, who gets deemed to be like a good Indian, right? right? right. Because I can't escape my racialization. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think maybe this happens in different registers. Like, um, Mm -hmm. their representation. The positive representation can have positive outcomes mm-hmm. but so infrequently does it result in sort mm-hmm. of tangible change in the lives of people who are <laughs> dealing with the consequences of poor racism yeah. like, or yeah. poor representation in racism I mean mm-hmm. is it, maybe that's a linear process mm-hmm. and that the neck in the next generation of indigenous youth and communities who are racialized in particular don't have to deal with the shit that our generation our mm-hmm. parents generation had to deal with um, I don't know is that a cop out of an mm-hmm. argument let's like sort of just wait and it'll get better mm-hmm. more awards just get more awards and it'll yeah. it'll get better mm-hmm. but you sort of have to sacrifice this current generation
1: yeah you have to sacrifice the current generation and you have to also sacrifice like you have to do that and I that's something that I've never been satisfied with doing right it's like I'm not willing to say like You know, especially in the way that that argument has always resulted in the disposability of Native women. Mm -hmm. Because it's all, you know, the focus on the next generation, the focus on youth, the focus on that ignores has historically ignored women right and the role especially the role of mothers when it comes to things like child welfare intervention right people are like you know we're, we're going to save the kids we're going to save the kids and, and then you destroy mothers who have experienced violence themselves maybe grew up in the system are product of residential schools they come out with not having any skills and we're like well no we're just going to focus on the kids and then the, there's this generation of parents that are no longer supported and are just seen as disposable Mm -hmm. And I've worked with enough women who have had their kids taken away from them to know how traumatizing and damaging and shameful that is for them and that they deserve a system that's more responsive to them and treats them with some basic dignity and understands their experiences as well, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah, I I think that there can be simultaneous time frames for... Progress and transformational change. Um, I I guess you know what we're seeing is a lack of. As long
1: as it's the white people, the white natives that are getting it first.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's part of the because it's
1: easy for them.
0: I think that this was part of what I was going (laughs) to say next. Uh, Wondering what the connection is between. This sort of positive mm-hmm. representation and any material change. I mean, if we do, mm-hmm. is it, is it, uh, oh, fuck, you interrupted me and now I've I lost know. my train <laughs> I know, because,
1: well, I well, wasn't, easier, I was right? trying to get
0: my critique through there. No, I think nope, we're going into, nope. di- well, I was agreeing yeah. with you. I was, um, agreeing yeah, with
1: we do agree. This is the problem. We agree, well, actually, so
0: I'm not even sure.
1: On this, and we're just arguing for no point. <laughs>
0: Um, Because
1: like that's the thing too,
0: right? Well, I'm just trying to think it through and and think it through. Well, no, don't don't shut up. I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think it through uh, uh, whether or not all this positive representation is in the service of settler colonialism or not. And when we say that there's no material change happening, Mm -hmm. and when we say that it's mostly white passing Indians, um, then you know whether we're talking about a time frame of now or next generation it's it's it, like i think the answer is probably the latter you know yeah. that it that it's that it's not leading to positive change but i'm 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 not entirely convinced and i'm not entire i'm not willing at this point to say that my career in educating white people about indigenous issues has been worthless uh, <laughs> at this point you know.
1: You've been listening to the Red Road podcast created by Courtney Skye and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud and iTunes. I've been driving in my car to the pound of the wheel.